Jodcast, not a contrived acronym. With George Bendo, John Field, Indy Leclerc, Ian Morrison, and Christina Smith. The Jodcast, June 2013 edition. Hello and welcome to the Jodcast. I'm Indy Leclerc, and joining me in the studio for this episode are Christina and George. Hi, guys. Hello. Hello. In the show this time, we talk to Professor David Neufeld about hydrides, we find out what you can see in the night sky this month, and we chime in with our own odds and ends from the world of astronomy. But first, before all of that, here's the news with Indy Leclerc. In the news this month, a slowing down neutron star, possible detection of a cosmic web, and Sagittarius A star munching on some hot gas. Neutron stars are without a doubt some of the most extreme objects known to astronomers. They are formed when a massive star runs out of fuel to sustain the nuclear fusion processes that push back against gravity. The star effectively collapses under its own weight, and if its mass is in the right region, around 8 to 30 solar masses, it will compress down to a neutron star. The density in a neutron star is around 10 to the 12 kilograms per centimeter cubed, meaning that a teaspoonful of the stuff would weigh roughly as much as every human being alive, around 400 million tons. They also rotate extremely quickly, tens or even hundreds of times a second, and possess a magnetic field up to a trillion times that of the Earth. Magnetars are a subset of neutron stars, which rotate at a slower pace, about once every few seconds, and with a magnetic field thousands of times stronger than a regular neutron star. These objects have the strongest fields in the known universe. So far, only 20-odd magnetars have been detected, One of them has recently been behaving unexpectedly, though. Astronomers using the X-ray telescope SWIFT have found that its rate of rotation abruptly slowed down. While neutron stars have been observed to sporadically speed up their rotation for short periods of time, this is known as a glitch, this is the first time a star has slowed down like this, a phenomenon that has been dubbed an anti-glitch. While the mechanisms involved are not fully understood, it is thought that interactions between the star's fluid inner components and its outer crust made of iron are responsible. These may rotate at different rates. If the crust slows down slightly, the superfluid neutron interior will remain spinning at the same speed, but from time to time it too will slow down, and by conservation of momentum the surface will speed up again. This explains a glitch. Complex magnetic effects, moving material around the crust and the inner fluid, may be responsible for the opposite effect, with the inner fluid slowdown and subsequent speed-up, causing the anti-glitch. The observation of this anti-glitch is in any case going to help increase our understanding of the truly exotic objects that are neutron stars. Possible detection of a cosmic web. Since the coining of the term island universes by Immanuel Kant to describe the nebulae people suspected were distinct entities, the study of galaxies has come a long way. While the image of an island universe is poetic, we now know that galaxies are not isolated in space. The predominant theory behind galaxy formation is that of hierarchical growth. Small clumps of matter interact gravitationally, colliding and merging with each other to form bigger and bigger objects, and eventually, galaxies. Simulations of this mechanism have been quite successful in describing the formation of elliptical galaxies. However, observational evidence has shown that big, bright galaxies are more commonly found when looking back to earlier times in the universe. This goes against the model of large galaxies building up over time. Furthermore, it's been calculated that at the rate galaxies are using up their hydrogen to form new stars, they should have run out in a few billion years. 
But galaxies such as our own Milky Way have been steadily consuming hydrogen for more than 13 billion years, almost as much as the age of the universe. It is in fact possible that the galaxies are even more linked than we thought. Numerical simulations have suggested that galaxies consist of only around a third of the so-called baryonic, or ordinary matter, protons, electrons and neutrons. The other two-thirds are supposedly to be found in intergalactic filaments of gas, forming a sort of cosmic web. This would be where all the hydrogen the galaxies are consuming is coming from. Furthermore, it seems that the gradual condensation of these giant clouds is more responsible for the formation of galaxies than the hierarchical interaction model. Why hasn't this model been suggested sooner? Well, until recently, the huge intergalactic filaments were incredibly difficult to spot. They're mainly formed of ionized hydrogen, a hydrogen atom that has lost its electron. Direct detections are extremely difficult, but since intergalactic hydrogen is never 100% ionized, it is possible to pick up some neutral hydrogen and infer the presence of its ionized counterpart. This is exactly what a team of astronomers has done, mapping the so-called fractional neutral hydrogen located between the Andromeda and Triangulum galaxies. This was a very challenging task, as the fractional hydrogen is 10,000 times less dense than the hydrogen commonly observed in galaxies, and the detection was made at the very limits of current technology. Nevertheless, this opens the door for more direct studies of the intergalactic gas, which will greatly help our understanding of galaxy formation and evolution processes, and our understanding of how they interact with their surrounding medium. Finally, astronomers have observed some surprisingly hot gas in the neighbourhood of Sagittarius A star, the bright radio source that is theorised to be the location of the Milky Way's central, supermassive black hole. Like most other spiral and elliptical galaxies, our own galaxy contains a huge black hole at its centre. The origin of these central singularities is still the subject of much research and debate, although observations at very high redshift, thus looking back towards the early universe, show that black holes could be in place at the centres of galaxies, as early as one billion years after the Big Bang. Our own black hole has a mass of about 4 million times that of the Sun, and is located around 26,000 light-years away from the solar system. A team of astronomers using the Herschel Space Observatory found clouds of extremely hot gas, less than a light-year away from the black hole. Herschel is an infrared telescope which can see through the dust obscuring the centre of the galaxy and reveal the environment around the black hole. It is suspected that the high temperatures of the gas are due to shocks and collisions within the gas, caused by strong magnetic fields. Additionally, it seems the gas is being pulled towards the black hole at very high speeds, which also contributes to its heating. This really means that astronomers are effectively seeing Sagittarius A-star gobble up hot gas before their very eyes. Thanks for that, Andy. Next, we have Christina talking to Professor David Neufeld about hydrides. Joining me in the studio is Professor David Neufeld from Johns Hopkins University. Hello, and thank you for joining us on the Jogcast. Hello, nice to be here. And uh, you've just given a really interesting talk on probing molecular clouds with observations of interstellar hydrides using Herschel and Sophia. So to sort of start everything off, what sort of molecular clouds are you looking at? Because there's quite a variety. Yeah, so these clouds that um, are pervade our galaxy in between the stars, and the ones that I've been looking at are sort of partly atoms and partly molecules. As the clouds get thicker, they have more and more molecules, and the thinner clouds are mainly atomic. Okay, so you're looking at a variety of different clouds. Yes, but mainly ones that are sort of halfway between being atomic and, and molecular. Okay, cool. And you're you're looking at interstellar hydride. So what's a hydride? So a hydride is a molecule containing one heavy element. So I mean an element heavier than hydrogen like fluorine or oxygen or carbon and then one or more hydrogen atoms. 
So these are small molecules and uh, they're very light. Okay, and has there been a lot of observations of these hydrides before? Is this, is this an ongoing project? It's quite hard to observe these molecules because the frequencies that we need to observe them at don't typically get through Earth's atmosphere. So part of the reason for that is that our atmosphere has a lot of water vapor, which is just the type of molecule that would absorb radiation at these frequencies. And so the field has really expanded a lot in the last few years, thanks to observations either from satellite observatories like Herschel or from airborne observatories like SOFIA. So you say SOFIA is an airborne observatory. How does that work? Because when you travel on, in an aeroplane, you're moving. It must be very difficult to track and turbulence and everything. How does that happen as an observatory? Well, actually, that's not a big issue, the particular issue of turbulence, because um, the telescope, which flies in a 747 aircraft that is operated by NASA and the German space agency DLR, the uh, telescope is perfectly balanced on a frictionless bearing. So, in fact, as the aircraft encounters turbulence, the telescope remains rock steady and can point directly at an object without wavering. So, these hydrides, are you looking for sort of emission lines or are you looking at things in absorption? How, how are you actually going about detecting them? So, the main way we've been trying to detect them and find out what their concentration is, is through absorption line observations, where we have a background source of radiation at high frequency. And then the clouds of interstellar gas that we're interested in lie in front of those sources and they absorb radiation at very specific frequencies that are really a unique signature of the molecule in question. We can also see the motions of the molecules towards or away from us showing up as Doppler shifts if we can measure these frequencies accurately enough. Okay, so is it difficult to distinguish between any absorption that happens from, say, the material you're exactly looking at or something that is, say, further in the foreground or, or, or anything closer to the source, maybe? Right. So um, one of the nice things is that our galaxy is differentially rotating, by which I mean that the inner parts are rotating more rapidly than the outer parts. So if you look along a particular sight line, towards a particular source, the material at different distances from you will be moving at different speeds. And by means of the Doppler shift, we can distinguish clouds at various different distances towards our background source. That's really handy, if nothing else, that you right. can distinguish like that. So for these, these hydrides, are there any in particular? Because you said it's sort of a hydrogen and a heavier element. Are you looking at a specific set or are you looking at a whole range of them? Well, we have been looking at a whole range of them with Herschel, which is the European Space Agency's large cornerstone mission that just finished its operations last month. And we've detected about two dozen different molecules, each of which has an interesting story to tell. One that I've been particularly interested in myself is hydrogen fluoride, a molecule consisting of one hydrogen atom and one fluorine atom. And the reason is that we believe that it will be very good at indicating how much hydrogen H2 there is along the sight line that we're observing because the chemistry leading to the formation of hydrogen fluoride is very simple. And we can be confident, therefore, that most of the fluorine atoms in these interstellar gas clouds will actually be bound up as hydrogen fluoride molecules. So how from that will you actually be able to sort of derive the abundance of hydrogen? How will you be able to... Right. That. So we could do that either uh, just from our theoretical knowledge of the chemical reactions that are likely important that tell us that 
there's a certain amount of fluorine and that it should all be in the form of hydrogen fluoride. But we can actually test this observationally looking at a very few sources which have the right properties for us to be able to observe hydrogen and hydrogen fluoride, in other words, H2 and HF along or in the same gas. And that allows us basically to work out the concentration of hydrogen fluoride. Okay, that's really good that you have those sources where you can compare the two. Right. So that's been uh, something that we've been doing uh, in the last year or so. And has that been using Herschel as well? No, so that we could actually do from the ground with a very large telescope, which is operated by the European Space Agency in Chile. It was actually possible from the ground using the European Space Agency's very large telescope, VLT, in Chile. It's a very difficult observation because Earth's atmosphere is absorbing radiation at those wavelengths. But if we can get just the right Doppler shift between the astronomical source and our own atmosphere, then we can make an observation. So it shifts it sort of into a window where we can actually observe from the ground. Right, but we have to choose when we observe very carefully. Okay, okay. So you, you've talked about hydrogen fluoride, and in your talk you mentioned a couple of other hydrides. So do you want to tell us a little bit about some Yes, of those? so one of them that we observe from an airplane observatory, SOFIA, is the Macapto radical. SH. So that's one sulfur atom and one hydrogen atom bound in a diatomic molecule. It has this funny name because organic molecules containing the SH functional group bind very strongly to mercury. So therefore, mercapto is the name given to this molecule. Um, and it's not a molecule that we would expect to see really any of if the interstellar gas clouds were composed entirely of gas at the typical temperature, which is only about 80 Kelvin, 80 degrees above absolute zero. So the presence of Macapto radicals indicates that at least some small fraction of the gas must be at higher temperature. In fact, must be more like a thousand Kelvin. This is something that's been hinted at by a number of previous observations, but these kind of observations provide uh, additional evidence for it and actually help us refine our understanding of why parts of these gas clouds are much hotter than the average temperature. Okay, one of the things that you actually said in your talk as well is that this Macapto was previously absent from sort of in interstellar molecules. Why, why would that be? Is it just that the transitions hadn't been observed? Right, so it had been impossible to observe the transitions. With the Herschel Space Observatory, there were a number of different frequency receivers operating in different wave bands, but there was a gap between about 1250 and 1440 gigahertz. And it's just in that gap that the uh, Macapto radical has its transition. And so it had not been possible to observe this one with Herschel. It was sort of a notable omission from what we'd been able to accomplish with Herschel. And now with Sophia, we were able to sort of fill in this missing piece of the puzzle. Oh, brilliant. So uh, what are your future plans for this research? Is there Are there other radicals and other hydrides that you're going to be looking at or just further study on, on the ones that you've been looking at already? Well, we have a lot of additional Herschel data that still needs to be analysed. And what we're planning to do is expand the set of molecules that we've been observing and also see how things vary with different locations in the galaxy and sort of make a map of the galaxy where we can show 
how, for example, the density of cosmic rays, which are these very energetic particles, uh, how the density of cosmic rays may vary from one location in the galaxy to another. And we'll do that using observations of molecules along many different sight lines to many different sources. Okay, so you've been, you have been looking at along various sight lines and have you seen anything so far a trend anywhere or? yeah so that's a good question and it's very much up in the air still so we really have not completed the analysis and aren't okay. able to say yet but it's a very interesting question which might point in the case of the cosmic rays to what their origin is if we see higher concentrations of the molecules whose production relies on cosmic rays let's say near places where supernovae have exploded in the past, that might suggest that supernovae are an important source of cosmic rays. Okay, okay. So thank you very much for telling us all about your research and wish you good luck in all the further data processing. And, oh, thank um, you. You're welcome. Thanks for that, Christina. Now we get to the part of the show where we fit in everything else that we want to talk about. It's the odds and ends. All right, kicking things off, we know that recently Chris Hadfield, Colonel Chris Hadfield, the Canadian astronaut on the ISS, has um, made it, created a lot of publicity with his Twitter account and his amazing pictures of space. Um, he's back on Earth now, uh, and, as part of, and as part of the regular rotation of the ISS crews, um, three more astronauts have just been sent up this week to the ISS. Ferried up on a Soyuz rocket, which was launched from the Baikonur Cosmodrome, in Kazakhstan at about half past eight on Tuesday, uh, GMT time. The astronauts are Russian Fyodor Yuchikin, American Karen Nyberg, and Italian Luca Parmitano. Um, it's the first time for um, Parmitano, who is part of the new um, crop of uh, ESA-trained uh, astronauts. I've read about these. This is, this is a whole new set from ESA, right, including a Brit? Yeah, that's right. There's uh, a Brit astronaut has been selected to uh, to go up to the ISS in uh, I think 2015. So, that's really exciting. <laughs> very exciting. So the trip for the astronauts from Kazakhstan to the ISS only took them about five hours and 45 minutes, uh, which is a lot shorter than the uh, than the previous sort of usual time, which took about two days. Um, the the capsule followed a new sort of improved flight profile, which is more technically demanding but saves the astronauts from being cramped uh, for two days in a, in a little capsule. Got to say, five hours or six hours sounds a lot better than two days. <laughs> yeah, we, compare, we complain about um, long-haul flights, but I have to say two days in a capsule. Um, well, there's a reason they're astronauts at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> they do get to go to space. <laughs> <laughs> so this, um, this, this trio of astronauts is uh, designated Expedition 36, and they're joining three other astronauts who are already on the ISS, um, two Russians, Pavel Vinogradov and Alexander Misurkin, and uh, an American, Chris Cassidy. So they have a week to sort of get used to their zero-G surroundings, um, although I don't think it's all just a holiday in space. Um, but then the real sort of work begins um, a week later. So just to note that um, Luca Palmitano is the, the younger, youngest person to get a long-duration stay, uh, which is six months on the station, and um, so, as I said, he's he's the first of the of ESA's new um, new intake of astronauts. He was selected in two thousand nine, so he's undergone something like four years of training. And uh, they have the ESA crews have a mission of uh, doing. They have about seventy hours of science to do a week, uh, which includes experiments uh, in fluid dynamic, fluid physics, sorry, and material science, which try to take advantage of the zero g, the microgravity environment. He's also scheduled to do two spacewalks and. 
he says that it's basically a dream come true. <laughs> I can see that that would be the case. I'm very jealous of all the astronauts. <laughs> I think we all are. <laughs> okay, and staying on a space flight theme, um, at the Cannes Film Festival, at, at a charity auction for the Amfar Charity Against AIDS, there were some seats on one of Virgin Galactic's new space flights were sold. And they were they were designated as a once in a lifetime trip to space with a mystery guest, and the mystery guest is reported to be Leonardo DiCaprio, which would be pretty cool to be on a space flight with Leonardo DiCaprio. Uh, the seat next to him sold for 1.2 million euros, which, to put it in perspective, the normal seats sell for only 250 thousand dollars, so pretty big difference. Um, and the, the another pair of seats on the same flight sold for 1.8 million euros. Um, there have been about 550 seats or tickets for these space flights have sold already and they've either been paid for in part or in full um, despite the fact that the spaceship hasn't actually gone into space yet but it's pretty cool and um, there's some quite famous people going on it so including R Richard Branson and, and his family of course have signed up for one of the first flights I believe and there was an exciting landmark in their route to getting into space actually at the, uh, on the 29th of April where Spaceship 2 did its first supersonic test and was successful, so yay. <laughs> and they expect to be um, having manned space flights by the end of 2013 and uh, commercial passenger trips could go up as early as 2014. So it's all within our grasp, almost. <laughs> all you got to do now is play, win the lottery in between and it's fine, like, you know. Yeah, if I had two hundred and fifty thousand dollars spare, you know, it'd go on a trip to space. <laughs> definitely, definitely. Will, will there be an in-flight movie on the flight with Leonardo DiCaprio? I have no idea, but if it was me, I'd be too busy being excited about it. <laughs> yeah, you wouldn't want to jinx the flight by playing Titanic, though, would you? <laughs> no, no, you really wouldn't. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, at the end of May, the European Space Agency or ESA, accepted papers from uh, astronomers describing new ideas for the next large or L-class missions that uh, they would like ESA to support. So these L-class missions are uh, fairly special. Uh, ESA is going to support three L-class or large missions every 20 years. There's already been one that was uh, approved a couple of years ago. It is a mission called the Jupiter Icy Moons Explorer, which you would think would have the acronym JIME, but actually has the acronym JUICE. This is a mission which is going to go to Jupiter, and it's going to focus in particular on studying the three large icy moons of Jupiter, Ganymede, Callisto, and Europa. And this is currently on schedule to launch in 2022. That's now, pretty soon. Pretty That's pretty soon by space mission standards and that it's going to happen within a decade <laughs> if everything stays on schedule. Now, that was a telescope where the proposal was already uh, approved by the European Space Agency. This deadline in May for new proposals uh, were for telescopes that are going to launch in 2028 and 2032. So a very long ways away. 
there are various options uh, or ideas for uh, spacecraft uh, floating around uh, out there. Uh, there could be a spacecraft to another planet or to an asteroid or comet. There could be uh, another mission for detecting gravitational waves from binary pulsars or from merging active galactic nuclei. Uh, there could be another X-ray telescope or uh, another ultraviolet telescope. Or my personal favorite, there could be an exciting new infrared or millimeter telescope, uh, including uh, one possibility with uh, an infrared and millimeter telescope, which is going to do an all-sky survey, or a high-resolution infrared telescope, which will be so good that it will be able to map star-forming regions in other galaxies. So a lot of a lot of potential projects there. Do you know when they when the ESA make their decision by? That's a good question. This is actually the first step in a rather long process. It could take a couple of years. Okay. And have there been any L-class missions before? What sort of things are close to the L-class missions? I don't think uh, ESA has used this designation before, but this is comparable to uh, XMM-Newton, which is an X-ray telescope, and uh, the Herschel Space Observatory, which is an infrared telescope, uh, which have both flown within the past decade. So pretty big projects then? Yes. Speaking of important projects, here's Ian Morrison with this month's Night Sky. The night sky in June. Well, to be honest, we don't have very much of a night sky. If you live in the north of Scotland, it probably will never get truly dark throughout the whole of the night. But those of us that live further south, then at least it can get reasonably dark. And there are still things to see. Well, what about the stars that we can see when the sun has finally set and twilight has gone? Over in the west is that rather nice constellation of Leo the Lion, rather like the lions in Trafalgar Square, squatting on its haunches. The rear star of Leo is called Denebola. Between it and quite a bright star called Arcturus, in the constellation of Bootes, is the constellation of Coma Berenices. And that is where we're looking towards the largest cluster in the immediate part of our universe, called the Virgo Cluster. It partly extends into the Virgo constellation below. Coming over from Arcturus, there's a rather nice little circlet of stars called Corona Borealis, the northern crown. And then an interesting constellation called Hercules. The four brightest stars make up what is called the Keystone, rather like that piece of stone at the top of a bridge, which is somewhat angled. If you've got binoculars and you move about two-thirds of the way up from the lower right star, hopefully you'll see a little bit of a fuzzy glow. And that's a lovely globular cluster called M13. As you move over towards the east, a very bright star is visible. That is Vega in the very small constellation of Lyra the Lyre. Again with binoculars, if you look a little bit to the left of it, you'll come across one of the most beautiful sights we have actually in the northern heavens. It's called the double-double. With binoculars, you'll see a double star, Epsilon Lyrae. However, if you observe with a telescope, when the seeing is good, the atmosphere is calm, you can see that each of those is itself a double. 
hence the name, the double-double. As the night moves on, then that lovely constellation of Cygnus the Swan, with its bright star Deneb, is rising. And lower down, nearer the southeastern horizon, is the star Altair in Aquila the Eagle. Those three stars, Vega, Deneb and Altair, make up what is called the Summer Triangle. A nice thing to look for with binoculars is to move about a third of the way up from Altair towards Vega. It's actually a rather darker region of the Milky Way, which is passing along this way, is called the Cygnus Rift. In that region is a rather nice little asterism called Brocky's Cluster, or in fact the Coat Hanger, because it looks just like a Coat Hanger upside down. Well, what about the planets? Well, Jupiter has been in the sky for quite a few months now. It's still just about there. It was seen in a very close grouping with Venus and Mercury towards the end of May. And in fact, quite a number of our own astronomical society were able to take some very nice photographs. They were within uh, about two and a half degrees of each other. It's still at magnitude minus 1.8. Not that bright, actually, because it's seen against the glare of the sun. And to be honest, by the second week of June, it's basically lost in the sun's glare to re-emerge into the pre-dawn sky towards the end of next month. Well, Saturn, of course, has been at its best the last two months. It's lying in Virgo. It's just to the west of south as darkness falls. It is down to the lower left of the first magnitude star, Spica, Alpha Virginis, and should appear a little brighter and with a yellowish hue. Its magnitude is dropping as it moves further away from us, and the angular size decreases from 18.5 to 17.8 arc seconds. It's closing on to the plus 4.2 magnitude star Kappa Virginis, and we're just 0.5 degrees away by month's end. As I'm sure you know, the rings have now opened out. They're about 17 degrees to the line of sight. So with a small scope and good seeing, you should be able to spot Cassini's division between the two outer main rings. Also, Saturn's largest moon, Titan. Sadly, Saturn is now moving towards the most southerly part of the ecliptic, so the elevation doesn't get that high even when on the meridian due south. And this will get worse, in fact, for quite a few years to come. Well, Mercury was seen at the end of last month. It's, in fact, forming a line with Venus and Jupiter on the first of the month. With a magnitude of minus 0.4, it'll be the faintest of the three, but in fact the highest in the sky. It reaches greatest eastern elongation, and that's when it's furthest in angle from the Sun, on the 12th of June, with an angular separation from it of about 24 degrees. Best seen about 30 minutes after sunset. In fact, this is the best evening apparition of Mercury this year. A telescope will show it as an 8 arc second, slightly gibbous disk. On the 18th of the month, it will be just 2.1 degrees to the left of Venus, and the day later, 1.9 degrees to its lower left. Binoculars may well be needed to spot Mercury, having first found Venus, but of course, don't use them until the sun has set. Mars. Mars passed behind the Sun on April the 18th and actually will appear in the pre-dawn sky this month, rising about 30 minutes before the Sun on the 1st of June 
shining at a magnitude of plus 1.4. You'd need a telescope to see it then, but by the end of month, it will actually lie about 7 degrees above the eastern horizon at this time and should be visible in binoculars. But again, cease using any optical aids, telescopes or binoculars, once the sun has risen. Finally, Venus. Well, it begins June shining at magnitude minus 3.8, about 8 degrees above the western horizon, half an hour after sunset. In contrast to many of its apparitions, when we see it fairly high in the sky, the fact that the plane of the ecliptic is at a shallow angle to the horizon in midsummer means that it will never rise that high in the sky this summer. It reaches a maximum elevation of only about 10 degrees around the 20th to 25th of the month. It's towards the far side of the sun. Its 10 arc second disk will be seen almost fully illuminated with a small telescope a phase, in fact, of 96% at the start of June, dropping only to 91% by its end. Well, finally, what about some highlights? Well, I've mentioned the fact that you can find the globular cluster M13 in Hercules and the double-double in Laro. What else could we look for? Well, rather nicely, around the 6th of June, you could quite easily spot an asteroid. In fact, in this case, Ceres is going to pass just below the star Pollux in Germany, which will be setting towards the west. So about an hour after sunset, on the 5th to the 7th of June, seek out the star Pollux, which is the head of the left hand of the Hevelian twins as we see them, the lower left star of the pair Castor and Pollux. The asteroid Ceres, shining at magnitude 8.8, will lie within one degree below. And there's only one other object of that sort of magnitude in the field of view, a star of magnitude 8.4 nearby. So you should pick it up quite easily with binoculars. And it'd be lovely if it proved to be clear for two or three nights to observe its movement from the 5th to the 7th. And on the night sky page, I've actually put a chart showing precisely where it will be relative to Pollux on those three nights. On June the 10th, there's a nice close grouping of Mercury-Venus and a very thin crescent moon. You might have a chance to see Earthshine, the dark part of the moon, but illuminated by reflected light from the Earth. Again, you'll need a very low western horizon to spot them, and you may well need binoculars to pick up Mercury. And finally, on June the 18th, there'll be a very nice gibbous moon, very close to Spica in Virgo, and not far from Saturn. So that'll be just a nice little thing to look at, hopefully on a clear night. Let's hope we do get some clear nights this month. They've been rather few and far between. You have to stay up a bit late, but maybe it's worth doing so. Thanks for that, Ian. Now, John Field tells us what you can see in the southern night sky. Kia ora, and welcome to the June Johncast from Wellington, New Zealand. We in the southern hemisphere are now experiencing our long winter nights and our short days. Our southeastern evening sky is dominated by the zodiac constellations of Scorpius and following Sagittarius the Archer. The red star Antares marks the heart of the Scorpion. This name means the rival of Mars. This red giant star is the 16th brightest star in our night sky and is estimated to be 600 light years away. It has an estimated diameter 800 times greater than our Sun and is 10,000 times brighter. To Māori and some Polynesian cultures, Scorpius is seen as a fishing hook a much more familiar item here in the South Pacific. 
One of the Māori names for Antares is Rehua, and it marks the eye of the hook and the blood of Māori staining the hook. Straddling the Milky Way, the region around Scorpius is home to a number of star clusters and nebulae which are easily observed. Nearby to Antares are two globular clusters M4 and NGC 6144. The M prefix and number are from the catalogue created by Charles Messier of 110 comet-like objects published in 1771. The NGC is a new general catalogue of 7,840 objects that were compiled by John Dreyer and published in 1895. M4 is the brighter of the two and is easily seen in binoculars and from a dark sky and may be visible with the unaided eye. Along the curved body of the scorpion there are a number of visual double stars that make a lovely sight to the unaided eye, binoculars and telescopes. Using a digital camera on a tripod and using a wide-angle lens and a 30-second exposure, you can catch a lovely image of this region showing the many star clusters and the structure of the Milky Way. Near the stinger of the scorpion we find a naked eye cluster that appears like a comet. Called NGC 6231, this cluster of stars is similar in size to the Pleiades, but further away at 6,000 light-years. The stars in this cluster are much brighter than those in the Pleiades, and if placed at the same distance they would shine as bright as Sirius, making a stunning sight in our night sky. Also nearby to the stinger, we find the star cluster M7. Appearing as a haze to the unaided eye, this cluster makes a nice view in binoculars or wide-field telescopes. Also in this region, but much fainter, is the butterfly cluster M6, at a distance of 1,300 light-years. The neighbouring constellation Sagittarius is host to a large number of nebulae along with many open and globular star clusters. These range in size from large and bright to small and faint. The constellation represents an archer in Babylonian mythology. The brightest stars of Sagittarius form an asterism, or the teapot. This region is home to a large number of interesting objects. Lambda Sagittarii marks the top of the teapot, and nearby is the globular cluster M22. It is one of the brightest in our night sky and can be easily found in binoculars. Perhaps the most spectacular clusters and nebulae are the Lagoon and Triflin. The Lagoon Nebula is known as M8, and it gets its name as it appears as a compact cluster of stars surrounded by a circle of nebulosity with a dark rift. The western part of M8 is dominated by two bright six-magnitude stars. The eastern part has a loose cluster of stars. The Triflin or M20, is seen as a small region of nebulosity nearby to the Lagoon. With a 200mm or greater telescope in a dark sky, it should be possible to spot the dark veins that split the nebulosity into three sections. M23 is an open cluster 2,000 light years away consisting of over 100 stars being visible forming curving arcs and chains. M24 is a bright region of stars and is often called the small Sagittarius star cloud. This cloud includes a number of dark nebulae superimposed on a brilliant starry background. M25 is a bright open cluster with a number of deep yellow stars about 2,000 light years away. M55 at magnitude 7.4 is a bright globular cluster and was discovered in 1752. Binoculars will reveal it as a hazy star and progressively larger telescopes will reveal more and more stars. The Milky Way is at its brightest, widest and densest in the region around Scorpius and Sagittarius. The Arabians called the Milky Way Al-Nahar, the river. The Chinese refer to it as the river of heaven. Tamari is Ti'ikaroa, the long fish. Today we know we are looking along the plane of our galaxy and seeing the glow of the many distant stars stretching around our sky. The region of Sagittarius is in the direction of the galactic centre, about 30,000 light years distant. The dark lanes visible in this region are clouds of dust and gas that may eventually form star clusters. Closer to home we have the planet Saturn in our evening sky towards the north and well placed for viewing. Venus in the west after sunset along with Mercury. And on the 10th of June both will be joined by the moon. 
Venus and Mercury will be at their closest on the 20th, and they'll be two degrees apart, after which they will begin to separate. By the 22nd of June, Venus will be near the star Pollux in Gemini, and Mercury will begin moving back towards the Sun. The southern winter solstice on the 21st of June and marks the time when the sun rises and sets at its most northerly points. Many cultures saw this as an important time and held special celebrations to mark this date. In Aotearoa, New Zealand, the dawn rising of Makariki, Pleiades, or Puanga Rigel, coincided with our winter solstice. The rising of these stars were used by Māori to mark the arrival of the new calendar year called Timara Mataka. Many other cultures in the southern hemisphere also use the Pleiades in their calendars. We hope you have enjoyed our podcast and we wish you all clear skies. Thanks for that, John. Moving on to the feedback. Uh, we have had a postcard, yay, <laughs> from Bill Keck 2. And he says, Dear Jodcast, greetings from Oxford, a town of gowns, spires and spiders. And the front of the, the postcard has a nice stylized picture of a typical Oxford street. And this one will be going up on our wall of postcards, which we have going on in the studio. So thank you very much, Bill Keck 2. We received several questions for Ask an Astronomer by email. We will try to answer those questions in future Jodcasts. We also received a Twitter from Blabrana who says, From my listening point of view, a great idea to record in 1G. Excellent interviews. I also agree it's an excellent idea to record in 1G, although it would be fun to try and record a jobcast in 0G. So. Can I'd write be... an email to ESA and propose that for a large project? <laughs> I was thinking that doing a jobcast in 2G would be interesting. Very physically rigorous. That would also be interesting. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's our bi-monthly workout. You know. <laughs> We've also had um, a new arrival on the forum. Uh, Tony Angel writes, um, Hi, I'm retired and live on top of the Sierra Contraviesa in, um, in Spain at about 4,500 feet. And he's an amateur astronomer with his own observatory. And he's also got an observatory owned by the Searchlight Observatory Network, which is an amateur organization that works with professionals as well, mainly on exoplanets. He says he's listened to the Jodcast since the beginning, and it's the best astronomy podcast going. Well, that's high praise, so thank you very much, Tony Angel. And it's quite exciting he's got his own observatory. <laughs> I'm highly jealous of that, personally. <laughs> Plenty of envy going on in this Jodcast. <laughs> it's astronauts' observatories. If you want to get in touch, you can do so via the website at www.jodcast.net. On the forum at forum.jodcast.net. On Twitter at twitter.com slash jodcast. On Facebook at facebook.com slash jodcast. On YouTube at youtube.com slash jodcast. And on Flickr at flickr.com slash groups slash jodcast. And you can always send us posts. The address is on the website. So all that's left to say is thanks to David Neufeld for the interview. The editors were Adam Averson, George Bendo, Claire Brotherton, Indy Leclerc, and Mark Power. The producer was Indy Leclerc. Until next time, Jodon. Bye. Bye.